All right. Great. And we are live, dear viewers and listeners. This is an episode you can't miss. It's the first time that we from Eurobytes, at least one of us, is reporting directly from the front. And this being said, Fabian, kind of kick us off. What's what's happening? What are the thoughts? What will we be covering amongst many, many other things in this episode? Yeah, um, this day, um, uh, February 2nd, 2022, 2222, will go down in history probably as an uh, important date to remember because a lot of events uh, took place on this day. Um, yesterday, um, Russian President Vladimir Putin um, officially signed a, a Russian acceptance of uh, the Eastern Ukrainian People's Republics. Um, and this, of course, caused quite the stir um, in the West. Now, you got to remember that in the media, we've had people constantly saying, he's going to invade, he's going to invade, he's going to invade, the troops are going to roll in. And, and, and of course, Kamala Harris in Munich last week, it's going to be, we're going to, you know, put sanctions on them. And um, Olaf Scholz, um, German chancellor, saying nothing but saying we're going to do something. So the big news here from, from our part here in Germany, Nord Stream 2 is dead. You got to remember, this is a project that goes back many years um, a pipeline directly from Russia to Germany to sell the Germans cheap gas and a project that has been obviously hated by bipartisanship uh, in the United States and amongst others, especially, we got to be honest, Europeans too, the Poles, the Ukrainians, a lot of people have hated this project. Well, today it has died um, and of, now the war drum is beating heavily in the West, at least. Um, but um, from from our part, um, you know, we're looking at a part of the world that obviously has been um, in a conflict since 2014. So this is almost a deja vu, right? You have the Winter Olympics and you have some uh, occurrence in the Ukraine. So um, apart from Crimea, Eastern Ukraine has been uh, a conflict zone for many years. So uh, Todd, you're there. Um, could you tell us what's going on? Well, uh, Kiev is quiet. Uh, I've put out several live streams here over the last few days. There's no sandbags at the airports. There's no sandbags on the streets. There's no tanks in the streets. I haven't seen one military uniform. Uh, I, I barely can find a policeman. So the, the capital is quiet. Uh, nobody's expecting anything. This has been in the East for eight years, so people are not concerned. Of course, maybe the military is keeping an eye, obviously, and preparing for what could happen and uh, assume they're on alert or whatever, which is prudent, and they should be doing that. Uh, but I don't see this, and I don't think the Ukrainian population sees this moving farther than the, uh, you know, the, the borders of Luhansk and Donetsk. I, I will say I met with the former Deputy Prime Minister uh, Oleg Uruski today, who left office just a few weeks ago, and he was in charge of industrialization for the armed forces and air defense specifically. And he had some interesting comments. He said there's three scenarios. One, that the, the troops will stay as in the Donetsk and, and Luhansk as they sit today. Uh, the second uh, scenario could be that they push the map, the forward line of troops out uh, to meet the geographical borders of those two areas because there's some areas to the west 
that the that the LPR and the um, you know DNR don't uh, DPR don't control. So they could do that uh, to make the borders uh, correct, but that would be that would mean a you know heavy fighting. Uh, or they could drive to Kiev and try to install a pro-Moscow government. Uh, I don't believe they have the force structure to occupy for any length of time. Uh, they don't have the money either. It would be a very expensive proposition. I don't think either of those second two scenarios are likely. However, I do believe that uh, those troops will stay. And essentially, Putin has controlled this area since 2014 um, with mercenaries and an occasional uh, book or uh, what a missile launcher coming in to help them. At certain times, or or grad rockets, but uh, I don't I don't see this escalating unless NATO wants to escalate it, and that's what I'm worried about is if the White House is going to escalate it beyond, um, you know, what it sits today. Probably, Todd, and that might be a good good uh, way to start it off. Sort of, Fabian has already heavily hinted um, at the somewhat disparate reactions by the president of a country who says, you know, folks, mm -hmm. <laughs> let's just calm the f down. Mm -hmm. um, this is nothing new, and then he mm -hmm. said so. On, and all the the governments living much much further away, have, have actually having a full ocean between them and Ukraine, uh, seem to think it was far worse than it is. I don't want to. Um, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't point out, as I had done before, uh, a couple of headlines from from the metro. Now, always holding up the metro, not because it's journalistically so great, but it shows what people in the United Kingdom are exposed to daily because it's for free. So they took a picture from a maneuver saying, is that what Putin means about pulling out troops? And there's another one of these kind of nonsensical headlines. So here's a map of Russia, greater Caucasus area and such showing where Russian troops are based. Um, so essentially that would be like me showing a map of the United States with big garrisons being, you know, like, for Bragg and mm -hmm. for Banning and saying, mm -hmm. ah, see, this is where the troops are based. And then there is mm -hmm. something else. I mean, the main German version of infamous German version of the BBC, the Tagesschau, um, had something along the lines of outcry as Russia uh, recognizes, diplomatically recognizes Eastern Ukraine. Who? And I'm always bewildered. The, with the double standard sometimes applied and the short historical memory. I kind of mm -hmm. remember, and it went sort of by the by when, I mean, I'm old enough and amongst the three um, <laughs> German folks, I'm sort of the Methuselah, and that dates me. I still remember how our foreign minister Kinko at the time, <laughs> Fabian and Lucas do sort of remember him from pictures. He's, he's a funny guy, was the first one to recognize former Croatia. So Germany mm -hmm. was within days Croatia split, Germany recognized it. I mean, mm. let's not even talk about what happened when, when part of former Serbia and um, then was it Serbia and Macedonia even, um, or no, Serbia and Montenegro split off and or wanted to split off the whole thing happened in the Kosovo and NATO attacked uh, as a part of the humanitarian intervention. Let's, let's go with the official narrative. And so... I'm sort of failing to see sort of the, the outcry. And I mean, as you've uh, hinted, Todd and Fabian as well, we're not talking about something, oh my God, they've annexed Poland. It is de facto a part that has been de facto autonomous since 2014. They have kind of formalized that, maybe had some troops in there, which might have been in there anyways in some mm -hmm. 
some shape or form. And I mean, as I said in the German, in our German podcast, um, there are probably in this whole world only four people um, who will, well, four people, and obviously let's let's bracket out Raytheon and, and, and the likes, but there are four individuals who've got everything to gain from a little war, which would be Boris Johnson, which would be Joe Biden, which would be Kamala Harris, and um, and um, am I am I missing somebody who desperately needs? Well, oh yes, Justin Trudeau desperately needs some some good uh, little war, and and I mean it shouldn't be surprising us that the narrative is the fiercest in these countries where the political establishment um, is in dire need of a good and small war. With this being said, before um, we've got tons of questions to shoot at Todd, who actually is in the frontline state. Lucas, a couple of thoughts from your side. You got to bring bring me onto the topic. I just joined because I was late. I'm sorry. So, so uh, yeah, essentially, bottom line, um, Todd says Kiev is surprisingly peaceful. I just walked us through through the outcry today. Sanctions and oh my goodness, Russia has recognized Eastern Ukraine. How can this be? And essentially, I was just making the point. Hey, what what de facto. Uh, you mean these uh, these small republics, not Eastern Ukraine, in their point of view? Yes, the small republic. Okay, thank you. I, yes. I think it's it's going to be really tough over the next weeks and months to uh, figure out what's what, what's the new nomenclatura, what's the right terms for certain things. But yeah, basically, all I can say from my standpoint is going back to the European reaction. Like yesterday, we've seen that pretty quickly, uh, Jen Psaki came up with this reaction from President Biden. And I mean, Kristen, you're laughing, but that was some reaction at all. Uh, in the EU, there has been no reaction until this afternoon. And I think um, there isn't going to be that much of a tough reaction, even though I do have to say I was pretty much surprised that this was now the point where they decided to um, to slow down or to basically halt the uh, finalization of Nord Stream 2. So I actually thought that was the German ultima ratio, like their means of last regard. And I actually thought this would only happen if they were to march into the um, into the not, not even disputed by Russia part of Ukraine. But as of yesterday, we know that Ukraine as a whole country is now being in dispute. Right. Um, probably that being said, and I, and I mean, again, I don't want to hog too much time, given that we've got the man on the front, Todd. Um, so you're saying you see precious little in terms of you don't see any uniforms, you don't see any um, sand, uh, sandbag barricades. I have been hearing from some friends that some Ukrainians uh, were actually quite enthusiastic about saying, look, if they actually come any further, then yes, we'll totally um, uh, grab the old Kalashnikov. Apparently, I've had a friend, but I can, cannot confirm that, but anecdotally, he said, yeah, even old women said, look, if they cross a certain line, then yes, yeah. there will be a mass uprising against that. So talk us through this sort of ambivalent mood. On the one hand, a city that doesn't seem to see, and then and, and Kiev is roughly in the middle of the Ukraine, a city that doesn't really see itself at war. Um, but does that mean that Ukrainians are not afraid? Does that mean that they're not willing to fight? Or when, when would that point be reached? Well, I, as I said, I spoke with uh, former Deputy Prime Minister Uruski today, and his comment was that this has uh, unified the country. There's a lot of disparate political factions here, 
that uh, you've got the nationalists, you've got the full-on Nazis, you've got the, you know, the the, the deep state globalists, uh, you, you've got the Clintonites, and you've got people who are just trying to get by and don't really do politics. But this has really uh, united the Ukrainian uh, political system to, to, I guess, face this threat, for lack of a better word. Um, there is some vulnerability to Zelensky uh, that's being talked about, possibly... Um, you know, he was in a vice. If he if he did nothing against Russia, then the word on the street that I was hearing was that there would be provocations started by the nationalists uh, to try and remove him from power, to try to you know do a, a color revolution type of thing. If he did did aggressively go after Russia, then the Russians would push back, um, as in if he did try to take back land in Donbass. So that's where Zelensky stood. And I'm also hearing that, you know, well, we know there's a lot of secrets here in Ukraine, especially for the Bidens and the, and the entire crime family. So uh, they don't want this uh, information to get out. Uh, they, they were active against Trump here. They ran information operations. They're laundering money, uh, doing all kinds of things. The, 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 deep, the, Secretary, or the State Department and the national security apparatus of the U.S. are extremely corrupt here and in bed with the Soros machine who has state captured the government. So there's a lot of secrets here, and they don't want that out. So I'm hearing that Zelensky may not be as friendly to the Biden position as Biden would like, and so there may be some pressure, and, and maybe this one may be one reason to to push for this conflict. Um, but you know, I'm hearing a lot of theories, but that's one of them. As far as uh, the people, um, I don't see any, uh, you know, worry uh, here in Kiev. I am going to Donbass over the weekend, so we'll see. How that looks, it may be a lot different, um, but uh, I don't know if I'll have internet or not, but possibly we could look at doing another quick show or something from that region if you guys want. But uh, anyway, um, I do feel that uh, one thing I wanted to say is that if you listen to what Biden said when all this first started a few weeks ago, which was driven by Biden in the West trying to get Ukraine into NATO up against Russia's border, which we signed an agreement that we would not do. So I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back for Putin, and he decided to just move forces in. But what Biden originally said was, well, a small incursion will be fine. So I think that this is the small incursion that uh, we're seeing right now. Probably in terms of the who benefits kind of of everything that's mm -hmm. happening. Um, I mean, as I said, there are obviously four individuals <laughs> worldwide if we bracket out Raytheon and, and all the big defense conglomerates uh, that have everything to gain. I mean, an interesting character is the guy who's often portrayed as the chess player, Putin. And probably my, my question would be twofold. So what is the view in Ukraine when you talk to people, what, why he does what he's doing? And then probably my own impression, and please everybody push back, um, if I'm mistaken, but my own gut instinct is he has actually um, done once again a move that has in a way checkmated everybody. So he's not going to offer the big war that certain individuals need. He's not, not going to back down and put himself under pressure from the Russian right. He's not going to do anything that he hasn't done so far and probably without becoming a total Putin fanboy, because I'm not. I mean, it was a kind of a masterstroke, sort of in 2014, only annexing the 
Crimea. And then, and we, we might actually remember that whenever he's portrayed as this maniac madman who wants war, um, how measured that guy is. So he kind of kept um, that part of Ukraine, these uh, um, independent republics or whatever we want to call them, Lucas, you're getting me in trouble again with the nomenclature here. Um, he didn't annex it, even though they asked him to. And um, so in a way, there has been quite a bit of strategic mastery again, but I might be wrong. So probably Todd, you first, what's the view in Ukraine on that? What's your own take? And then guys, uh, chime in. Well, I, I hear uh, from my Russian contacts uh, on the street, you know, nobody in politics, but they're saying they're quite shocked uh because this has severe consequences for them the ruble is devalued uh you know Nord Stream is stopped um there are other consequences if they take them off swift that could be a possibility that's real consequence uh for russians so uh they are quite shocked ukrainians you know it depends on who you talk to uh it really depends on the man uh you know the the prime minister told me today that putin is sick and you know can't negotiate with him. Uh, he, he's a maniac, as you said. Others see it as more reserved. Um, but the Ukrainians are definitely, um, at least on this side of the Donbass, very much against Russia, which I see. So we'll see where it goes. Wow. How, how does the whole sort of risking, swift risking um, North Stream, how does that square with sort of my theory of the chess player, or does it, <laughs> or does it not? Um, is it is it worth it in the greater scheme of things? What's your take, or what is what what are you hearing? Um, that hasn't come up. I, I haven't heard it here. Um, strangely enough, that the Ukrainians that I've talked to are really unaware of what's happening in the U.S. Um, they think as Biden is just another president who's they have to deal with when you tell them that he's not legitimately elected and there's a major power struggle going on in the US, they, they're quite shocked because they expect just all the support to come from the US as they've always had. So this is uh, something I think that uh, will play itself out as to how Biden reacts and how the Ukrainians react. I, uh, you know, SWIFT is like the nuclear bomb, right? I mean, it, it really does remove Russia from the Western world because if you can't move money around, then what are you going to do? You're going to move your whole economy to the one. I mean, that's what we're, that's what he's talking about doing. So I know there's the fortress Russia strategy, and they're trying to um, decouple from the West, but uh, I still think they have huge liabilities in that respect. Well, and and my opinion too is, um, as much as I think the 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 stroke that he did yesterday was a was a you know from a chess player's perspective certainly strategically uh, done well the problem is as as we've both said here or uh, christian mm -hmm. you too um i i um i sort of see him in an economic cul-de-sac because um i don't know what they're going to sell and especially if, if, if the whole gas thing doesn't work out, um, what they've been doing, I mean, you got to think about this. Uh, German politicians bend it over backwards to actually defend Nord Stream. I mean, you mm -hmm. had 
um, you had, uh, uh, you know, state prime ministers of, of, of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern who, you know, fought with just everything they had to keep this project alive. There were a lot of people that put things at stake uh, to keep um, this, this thing alive. And you got to remember, this was the whole issue that um, um, the German-American relationship sort of started right. to uh, tear upon in the last couple of years. Even Mitch McConnell, um, when um, Olaf Scholz was in, in Washington, Mitch McConnell gave a speech about, you know, the whole blah, 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 great ally. But then the most important thing he said was Nord Stream's got to end. So here's what I find interesting is, on the one hand, Nord Stream's going to end. On the other hand... Um, they're already talking about raising the defense budget in Germany. So let's just say if Donald Trump were to come back to office in 2020, well, then 20, January 2025, you may have a Germany that is A, spending 2% on its defense budget, and B, Nord Stream is dead. So, hey, at least for the wow. German relationship, <laughs> it's, it might play out to be a little better. I do want to say another thing. As of today, um, realpolitik, political realism is back. The the mm -hmm. the end of history is over. Um, at, after the Cold War, there was this this um, Charles Krauthammer, Francis Fukuyama liberal notion that you know th there's no there's not going to be any more conflicts. Democracy is going to spread. Institutions are going to spread. Um, um, uh, free market economy, capitalism is going to spread. And we are done with um, with realism and 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 real um, yeah strategy politics. Now, what's interesting is in the '90s, three books were written that are completely relevant for today. It's first Samuel Huntington's uh, Clash, Clash of Civilization. It's um, Zbigniew Brzezinski's um, Grand Chessboard. And um, the third book is Alexander Dugan's um, Foundations of Geopolitics. And all three of those books, if, if anybody were to read them, it's like reading the newspaper of what's happening right now in the Ukraine. I mean, Huntington talked about this. Um, Dugan impl uh, impl wants this basically implemented and Brzezinski warns about it. So... Um, th this is nothing new under the sun. These are just books or, or strategies or theories that tell us what would happen if Russia were to get strong and assertive again. So this should come, for, in my opinion, to no surprise. And for the West, I think the most important thing that we take with us is that this whole notion of theorizing about norms and institutions and all of that stuff um, is basically done with. I think we're returning to... Realpolitik mm -hmm. as of today. Well, yeah, the problem is, sorry, I'll say one thing. Go ahead, go ahead, Todd. Go ahead. I was going to say our institutions are dead, so but they're not functioning. So that's you're right. But go ahead, Lucas. Well, I think thank you. Um, I'd like to pick up where Fabian left off with the spheres of influence and also the question of whether there's a re-rise of um, realpolitik. Um, interestingly, Chancellor Merkel already mentioned that in 2014 when she was visiting um, a think tank in Brisbane, Australia, where she was, um, and I quote that, who would have thought it possible that 25 years after the fall of Berlin Wall, that such a thing could happen in the middle of old Europe, old thinking about spheres of influence, which runs roughshod over international law. Frankly spoken, um, I do think this is not just uh, this is not the beginning of this old sphere of influence thinking. It's just um, it's a new level. And Chris mentioned this before regarding the fact that 
Russia did in fact not annex these regions right away um, officially. Like let's let's be clear here, these um, semi-independent Donbas Republic, etc. Of course, they're they're completely depending on Russia for their survival. So mm-hmm. had it not been for like Russia was and is the uh, condition if it, for for which is absence. It was not, they would not just not exist. Latin speaking people would now say this. Uh, and I think the interesting matter is that what we've seen is that Germany has also managed to play along these rules. Like Russia has not actively annexed these regions and Germany did not actively um, change their um, foreign policy stance towards Russia. And now we've seen um, there's a real action by Russia marching into these regions with their, as they call them, I think, peacekeeping troops or whatever they are, like who needs a peacekeeping howitzer. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, we've seen that Germany actually is able to react and to act on its own. And do you think, um, like, when I was at CPAC in 2019, um, at one point, Germany and especially Chancellor Merkel uh, took a real hit by people who were like discussing German foreign policy. And they were all like, yeah, German foreign policy, if it were to exist at all, is just in shambles. And do you think um, that was a bit too easy? I do think that um, Merkel did less foreign policy than, than we would have liked to see, but there has been some foreign policy. And I do think Germany actually um, is not that bad of an ally for the West as they act like they do. We might not forget, and this is especially for an American audience, I think quite important. Um, the U.S. is not the country that is suffering from sanctions. The U.S. does not really feel any sanctions. Europe does feel the sanctions. Germany does feel an increase in gas pricing. Germany does feel the fact that we're currently discussing in domestic politics, how can we make sure that people with lower incomes um, are not completely um, or are not affected this harshly by rising energy prices? Because keep in mind, um, people do heat with gas here and people are also kind of skeptical towards American um, natural gas, whether it's like liquefied gas or fracking gas, et cetera. They just don't want it for environmental purposes, interestingly, and they also don't want it because a German audience does not really understand why you need to ship um, liquefied natural gas 4,000 miles across the Atlantic just for energy independence. Because for Germans, I do have to say, uh, maybe this has changed um, yesterday, but for Germans, this whole conflict has still been um, featuring a buffer zone of Poland, of Ukraine. Now, the only buffer zone country is Poland nowadays, but I do think that most Germans are still kind of like, yeah, whatever. I, th- I think there, there's something interesting, and um, probably, and Todd, do chime in when what in terms of what foreign policy interested Americans think. So in the United Kingdom, until recently, um, but even and particularly on the political right, um, people say, well, the European Union is the continuation of Germany with other means. And this is the one bit where I always push back. Remember, so one of our first episodes, I always described Germany as this odd actor that doesn't have any vision, that kind of likes to make fun of the Americans, but relies on their protection, that mm-hmm. kind of lo- loves to virtue signal how much better than Russia they are, but they buy their gas. Mm. And, and now, obviously, we 
A, a couple of things are happening in Europe, and I'm still not convinced that Germany is the big leading nation. Fundamentally, we kind of want to, sometimes there are cautious moments of, hey, we want to do what's best for us, i.e., well, at least price-wise, it's better for us to buy gas directly from Russia. You know, let, let the strategic blindness be bracketed out for now. At the same time, we really want to be liked and we, we postulate such a thing as value-based foreign policy. And on the other hand, the, the French and the Brits have a much clearer vision. I mean, the French is always like, you know, whatever helps France, whatever makes France look good. And I mean, they tried to be the disinterested party the last couple of days. That was sort of their, their shtick. Um, and then they're pushing actually their agenda much more aggressively than Germany that is still afraid of itself and others. We've got the Brits who always are this sort of, you know, balance of power and a bit of, oh, what a splendid uh, game, sort of um, the foreign policy. Um, and so, so, so this is sort of the, this weird three-partite of the major economies and countries. In Europe, you've got Eastern Europe stuck in between. Obviously, they have legitimate security, security concerns if anybody has any. And yet I see this, what Fabian said, shaping up to something interesting. Definitely, well, Huntington's prediction didn't pan out at all. And if there indeed is the return of realpolitik, what makes it so interesting this time? Well, I'm, I'm going to actually ask that question. This time it is proper realpolitik, just interests, just without the main major ideology um, behind it. Or is it? I mean, one could argue, well, you know, Russia is this other model and it doesn't want to copy that whole Western woke stuff. But I mean, it's not like they're offering communism as that big other kind of bit. So mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's this weird no man's land that we are in the middle. We don't really have a clear dominant power in Europe, certainly not Germany. And we don't have this clear ideological conflict. So I'm like, what is the, <laughs> this current conflict really about? There's a, uh, uh, you know, I put up a lot of images and I search the web and for free images. And when I look up Putin and Obama, there's a funny cartoon of uh, Putin or Obama in a cowboy outfit with a gun and a hat. And he looks at Putin, who's dressed up like a, you know, a 18th century soldier, you know, captain. And he said, you're acting so 18th, you're acting so, you know, 18th, 19th century when Obama's in his cowboy outfit, you know? So I, I think that, uh, I think we've stepped back in time, frankly. I mean, this is nation states working for their own self-interest. And, but you've got an overlay of this globalist, uh, agenda above that. I, I, I do believe Biden is pushing this war for many different reasons, um, foreign policy-wise. It's not for the best interest of the United States. So that question is is gone. This this is more for his personal or somebody else's agenda. You know, Klaus Schwab, who knows, Barack Obama, who knows? Uh, we'll know one day, I hope. But uh, I just hope somebody smart enough stops this before it gets any worse. I mean, in a lot of ways, there are only losers, apart from the four individuals that I mm -hmm. mentioned. Um, there are only losers in terms of nation state. Germany, certainly bigger gas prices, and we export a lot of stuff into Russia mm -hmm. as well. The United States, certainly 
Um, it's an unnecessary conflict when you guys have so much other stuff you should be <laughs> attending mm -hmm. to internally. And the same holds true for the whole rest of Europe. Um, China, obviously, being one of the major benefactors. I mean, as I mm -hmm. said, the, the whole thing, thinking about the chess player Putin, mm -hmm. it, on the one hand, yeah, in the short term and the long term, it, it hurts Russia. It, it hurts everybody. And I mean, sometimes when you get to these kind of situations, it's 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 really interesting to 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 ask yourself how how did we did we get there other than having these having a bunch of well we people. got there by an election being stolen by an illegitimate regime in the united states this is what's behind all this i mean you would not have this happening if, if trump was in the white house in my opinion one and, and there Putin were military not... leaders who said that they could i mean there were, there were generals yeah. that said that, i mean former generals this would not have happened if trump was still in power no, well, mean, the, the only president of the U.S. president who's killed hundreds of Russians in the last decade is Donald Trump. You know, people don't know about when he went into Syria and there were a thousand Wagner mercenaries coming to a, a, an American special forces position. And he just he called the Kremlin and they said, no, they're not our regular troops. And he said, OK. And he sent the Air Force Special Operation gunships after him, killed hundreds of them. And that, that got Putin's attention. So. Um, so there's that, and then there's Russia. I mean, Trump was giving Putin the this carrot and the stick. He's like, let's have a good relationship. If you go off the trail, you're going to get whacked. So I, that is not happening now. So there's neither upside nor for Putin at all. So he's just doing what he can do. I think, and what upsets me about this whole thing is, and I taught. I think we mm -hmm. we talked about this back a year ago, or. Um, Around January 2021, I remember saying, you know, why, why all, of, I mean, because there were already troop movements of the Russians um, mm -hmm. close to the, to the Ukrainian border. And I was thinking, you know, this, all of a sudden now, um, and I think your reply was basically something to the notion of, well, they, they see that the U.S. now has a weak leader uh, mm -hmm. who's in charge. And so to me, again, this, this, this is no surprise um, yeah. to me that this is happening. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the one thing that I find kind of interesting is that, um, as far as what I'm following, but I'm not too deep into this, uh, is that you have a lot of the mainstream media in the United States already beating the war drum and, mm -hmm. you know, channels like MSNBC are all of a sudden calling out Tucker Carlson for being pro Russia and everything. Um, but what really interests me is how are like people from the conservative right uh, reacting? Are they, you know, you, I mean, uh, <laughs> Lucas, you know, uh, our, our friend Ben Shapiro is all of a sudden saying, oh, this is so dangerous. What must Biden do? And what I sort of worry about is that you all of a sudden have this, you know, people from the, from the conservative spectrum being um, drawn into this and all of a sudden believing this is a threat to national security and America must act and sort of the, the whole Bush Bushism phrases will be back. Yeah. And unfortunately then from the right, but Todd, could you kind of... Well, think about this. Currently, where is the threat to the United States? Uh, we have on our southern border, it's wide open. Tens of thousands of military-aged men are crossing every day, terrorists included, uh, you know, fentanyl, drugs. That's the biggest uh, cause of death in the United States now is fentanyl being pushed by China up to the southern border. So why are we worried about the border of Ukraine? 
why isn't Germany dealing with Ukraine? Why isn't France and Britain dealing with Ukraine? I mean, so uh, I think this is engineered. I think Ukraine has been a long time play playground, uh, wild, wild west, and, and used for certain purposes by different groups. And uh, I don't think this is any different. I just see no reason for our men and women at this time in history where we have $30 trillion in debt, where our economy is imploding, uh, to go spend trillions more dollars uh, fighting in, in Eastern Europe. That makes no sense to me at all. And there is no sense to it. So it's being done for some other reason. Probably, and that leads me over again, now that we've got you in Kiev, mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure, about, you know, there's only so much ground you can cover during the day. Mm -hmm. Are you just talking to people? Are they seeing an influx or outflux or a presence still of all those Westerners that have been using Ukraine as their playground for decades? I mean, I have a good friend of mine who used to work for an NGO um, in Kiev way back. And I mean, he at, at one point thought the, I mean, it, it turned out in, in, after the fact that in all likelihood his NGO had been taking agency money and mm -hmm. he, he didn't like a lot of what he saw and then he then left and took a normal job somewhere mm -hmm. in the States, which is why I'm leaving him out of this mm -hmm. discussion. Otherwise he would be a great guy to bring on. Um, but are you seeing any of these actors still on the ground? If so, what are they doing? Who are they? Um, is there actually an influx of them? Is there an outflux of them? What's the... I, I know a lot of, uh, they're using this uh, excuse to move people out uh, and to create fear and the appearance of fear. You know, I, I saw, uh, I, I forget where it was reported, that they were saying that the, the Russians are going to kill all the Ukrainian and foreign journalists. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you don't want somebody to see what you're doing and report about it, you, you would say something like that, right? Uh, and then they, they, they evacuated the U.S. Embassy up to Lviv, and now I guess it's going to Poland, but, you know, that brings up the opportunity, well, if you're worried about Russia coming in, and of course that's where they might come down to the capital, but also maybe you plan on starting some uprisings against the government to try to bring in a more friendly uh, you know, figurehead uh, for, the, for the Soros machine. Or, or Putin may do the same thing, but uh, there's a lot of theories running around, but I, I have seen or heard anecdotal evidence that people are leaving more to create the fear porn than anything else, I think. I don't think people in Kiev are worried about this. I, I know they're not. So I, I, there's not one change I've seen on the street from the other 20 times I've been here. I mean, one interesting statistic that I have heard, I mean, which would be a counter narrative to what you said in terms of the fear being instilled when the Russians are going to come, they're going to kill all the foreigners or journalists or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And um, those are two nations which are not hateful towards one another. I mean, uh, from what I hear, the, heard, there was a survey a couple of weeks ago where the Russians had like an overwhelmingly positive image of Ukraine. Actually, by the mm -hmm. way, far more positive than the image of the United States nowadays in mm -hmm. Germany, as I said, it pains me to say that mm -hmm. all the surveys after decades of anti-Western, anti-American narrative in, in the schools, it, it kind of shows in, in the polls, which is why way, way back, much as I, I did not like George W. Bush, there was this German minister who, without punishment, likened Bush to Hitler, which, you know, for all <laughs> Bush's flaws and, and shortcomings, mm -hmm. that's just a, a bit rich. Um, yeah. 
Well, I have to cut soon to go do another interview. I'm sorry, but um, I wanted to ask you, Lucas, though, in Austria, what what is the the reaction to the the science changing overnight and the vaccine? Oh, this is interesting. (laughs) At at first, uh, let me me just tell you one thing about Ukraine first. Austria, Uh again, you know, Austria is one of the neutral countries who are having a hard time um, figuring out how to react to this. So I think you'll see over the next days, Austria is kind of the more lenient um, partner of Germany when it comes to Ukraine. On the other side, sticking with uh, your question regarding the vaccine requirement, mm-hmm. um, the government still backs the whole thing. But you do have to, like, um, what you can see is that the state governments, and typically in Austria, what the state governments want happens on a federal level after some time as well. Um, the first governors, or Landeshauptleute, as we call them, um, have now started to be like, yeah, let's not enforce that. Um, let's let's just wait. Um, the federal government's um, stance is still that they want to keep this um, vaccination mandate on, claiming that maybe in fall it's going to be a whole different situation again. But as from my point of view, I do have to say, I think they're just not enforcing it. Um, like originally the vaccine mandate was supposed to be um, enforced by doing an electronic cross-check of your, um, of the, how do you say, the the record, like the basically just the people's registration. Like, you know, in most European countries, you need to have a registered address where you can be, where you can have letters um, sent to you, et cetera. So they wanted to, to make like a lookup between this spreadsheet and the vaccination record, which they introduced some years ago. And who would have thought the COVID vaccine is the first vaccine that's actually been put in there, like measles or the ticks, et cetera. Nothing made it in there, but COVID made it. they backed down from this in early January, claiming that maybe that, like, they were like, yeah, it's technically not feasible. Let me tell you, had they wanted this, it would have been technically feasible. And now they've reached the point where like, yeah, um, if the police were to stop you in a traffic stop or were to just approach you, they they may ask you for your vaccination record. Um, no policeman's gonna do this. Um, like, first of all, they don't want to be the ones enforcing this rule. And secondly, they have better things to do. So mm. I think it's going to be it's going to be a dangerous situation because it's like so uh, there's not a lot of legal certainty. Like on one hand, people are like encouraged to not get vaccinated anymore. Like foreigners who have not been vaccinated can go to Austria nowadays once more and can do whatever they want to. Uh, but Austrians at the same time are still legally mandated, but they do not know what or if they were to ever receive a fine. But here's the thing, just like the American Supreme Court and the European, uh, the, the Austrian Constitutional Court um, also just has its sessions. So um, I think in about two weeks time, they start um, discussing the all these cases where people were claiming that a vaccination mandate is illegal. So this is going to be this is going to be an interesting next weeks. But I do think that the government will remain at their stance, and I do think that the um, constitutional court will likely say that it's just no longer necessary. So I guess they will just strike it down, and then the government mm-hmm. can be like, "Yeah, we tried our best." Yeah, interesting. That's what I always 
admired about Austria throughout the history. That's why they kept an empire for so long. They had this relaxed manner of letting certain things die, a slow death, not rock the boat too hard, mm. kick it in the long grass so nobody felt offended if it greatly and um, it might be a shameless generalization of our eastern neighbors but i've always admired that ability to let certain things just die a slow death without much drama so, yeah. well gentlemen with that i have to roll i'm sorry i've got another interview and i've got to get ready for it so uh, i've been doing uh, back to back for 48 hours so no anyway. problem totally understandable thank you todd thank you guys God thank you. and hopefully see you from Cheers. from the east then